Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. We ask that you would overcome all the obstacles that we set up very deliberately uh, to prevent uh, both truth and grace from penetrating our own hearts. We ask that you would be the one who fights for us, and we ask that you would prevail. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. I want to speak this evening about the whole concept of deficits. Deficits, that is, things we lack. You know, we have a lot of problems as human beings. We have our own sins. We have our own uh, personal histories and families that gave us certain, certain perks and also certain uh, liabilities. And one of the things that haunts me and probably haunts you are things that we just lack, things we don't have, the deficits of character, the the things in our, in our lives that didn't come together as well as we had hoped, you know. Uh, for many people, they lack a, a stable home. And so whenever they hear all sorts of lofty language about families and the warmth of families, they can't relate at all to that. And for other people, it's about physical beauty. Maybe you're noticing that it's changing with time, or you think in your eyes it's diminishing, when you don't want people to see that, right? to tell that you're not who you once were, at least visually. I have a friend who's a runner. Uh, he's, uh, he's like hyper-driven to run. He runs every day, um, and he runs at least 10 miles a day. And I think that that's complete insanity, but that's what he likes, and I'm like, whatever. Um, but he, um, he, he's become very depressed because he, he had a, a recent knee injury, and the doctor told him, look, you can never do this again. Like, running is just not for you. Consider it your past, but certainly not your future. I know other people who uh, lack an able mind, you know. Sometimes, by the way, this happens in marriages where you're married to somebody who loves to debate, and they can always win because that's how their mind is wired. They just win debates. That doesn't make them right, by the way. It just makes them, you know, mouthy and, and able. But you feel like you're not, like you can't carry the weight of a conversation or you can't persuade because you lack in that way or have a deficit in that way. Some people remember that there was a time you had money but you don't anymore. You know, let's say that you were raising three girls <laughs> and you used to have money, but then it went away and you never got it back. Some of us have that story, right? But deficits, things that we lack. Well, we're in this sermon series, as of uh, last week and this week, called Integration, in which we see how St. James and his letter connects real faith with real life. And James begins his epistle right out the chute by talking about trials and things that we face that are ultimately very destabilizing. But James sees with kind of a third sight. He says, 
what you may not know is that God is using every trial that you are facing right now to give you a, a semblance of self, a sense of self, a robust self, a completed self that you wouldn't have otherwise. So God has the power to rewire all of our difficulties in such a way that makes us more than what we would become otherwise. And, and so he says in the letter that it is God's goal for you that you would become complete and lacking nothing, that you wouldn't just be, uh, you know, somebody who is tossed to and fro by the wind, but that you would be a person of substance, a person of great strength, that you would lack nothing. Well, now he turns in his letter, after writing about his hopes for us, that we would lack nothing, he turns his attention toward two places where his audience has lack, that these are places where God wants to make you more complete than you are. Uh, and he says to this audience that you have one internal deficit and one external deficit. Your internal deficit is wisdom, and your external deficit is wealth. So he talks about what it means to live with lack in terms of wisdom and wealth. So I want to talk about wisdom first, because he says that some people are going to lack that. This is verses 5 through 8, but I'm just going to read verse 5 to you. This is the wisdom section. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Well, what is wisdom? Um, wisdom is not just law, and it's not just knowledge. It's not just a, an awareness of uh, what the code is. It's deeper than that. Wisdom is like a practical moral intuition, a practical moral intuition that helps you discern and navigate life in such a way that you minimize damage and you maximize benefit. Uh, I, I learned a lot about wisdom from jazz musicians, actually, because jazz musicians, and maybe some of you are jazz musicians, or you at least know the craft, jazz musicians, in order to be jazz musicians, need to know classical forms. They need to know scales, an organized sequence of notes, backwards and forwards. But they also need to know, at any moment, how to improvise, how to think on their feet based on those prior learned principles. Uh, and that's not dissimilar to wisdom. It is that practical moral intuition that gives you a sense on what the right action is at any given moment. And wisdom was a massive theme within Israelite theology, absolutely massive. And so James here, who is very inclined toward his mother religion, toward Judaism, is drawing from the deep well of their wisdom tradition. Uh, wisdom, uh, in fact, takes up a bulk of the Old Testament. Some of the books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. These books help people to navigate through a fallen world in a way that is wise and less damaging. And there is an author, uh, what is believed by many to be a singular author or a primary author behind those books, or at least some of them, and his name uh, is King Solomon. He became in some ways the archetypal uh, monarch of wisdom or the man connected with the theme of wisdom, at least early in his reign. Uh, you may know that King Solomon, uh, right when he was made king as a very, very young man, prayed something uh, very beautiful to God. In 1 Kings chapter 3, he asked God to give him a present. And this is what it says. 
He says this to the the Lord. Oh, Lord, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a child, I do not know how to go out or come in. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Well, this pleased the Lord who said to Solomon, because you have asked this and have not asked for long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies. I will give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor. So Solomon recognizes, because of his youth and inexperience, a deficit in his own person. The deficit is wisdom. So what does he do? He prays. He asks God for wisdom, and then God gives him wisdom with all of the ramifications of wisdom. And I think it's fascinating that from one perspective, all Solomon's other problems were far more pressing. If you were a king, you wanted a long life. If you were a king, you wanted the vanquishing of your enemies. If you wanted a king, you sure wanted money. But he bypasses all of that to ask for something that he regards as more foundational. Because Solomon knew that if we don't begin with wisdom... We will take those very blessings of life, money, long life, the absence of adversity, and we will misuse every single one of them to ultimately bring about our ruination. By the way, what will probably uh, impact us more than anything in a negative fashion is not something that is just blatantly and obviously evil or stupid. Like you in your life will probably not be taken down by overt Satanism. Probably not. Um, and Or like chewing on Tide Pods, which people used to do like three years ago. You don't remember this, Tide Pods? People used to eat laundry detergent. I don't understand it, maybe you do. Lots of psychoanalysis needed. Nevertheless, um, that is probably not the thing that will thwart you. Here's what will thwart you and will thwart me if we're not careful. Blessings. Good things that we will appropriate without wisdom. And they will be our undoing. If we aren't wise friends, We will misuse the good gifts of life, like romance. You can misuse romance and become absolutely obsessed with somebody to their detriment and to yours. We will misuse alcohol and end up in a rehab three times. We will misuse our charm so that we're able to use and manipulate people. We will misuse ambition and become vain. We will misuse convictions and become conceited and angry when others disagree. We will misuse our temperaments like introversion, and become one who isolates. The point is, without wisdom as the foundational principle, as the discerning principle, we self-combust. Without wisdom, we self-combust. This is what the Old Testament is trying to teach us, and what James is trying to teach us. And so St. James tells us, in essence, take a Solomonic approach to this matter. Like Solomon, Like Solomon, James knows that we need two things to grow in wisdom. Everybody in this room, you need two things if you're going to grow in wisdom. Here's the first thing. An awareness of your own deficiency. You need an awareness that you are deficient, that you lack. I find very often we are terrified to admit this. We're terrified to admit ignorance, especially when a trial comes. When a trial comes your way, when something, a body slams you, what do we do? We often instinctively rely upon our own resources of wisdom, our own conceptions of the situation, our own understanding of truth, our own experience, our own personal history. Why do we do this? Because it's familiar and it's comforting. But that kind of 
low-grade wisdom only relies upon the reservoir of the self. And there's only so much water or wisdom in that reservoir. We need something that supersedes it. Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way, has a wonderful line about this. They say, um, trusting yourself is the very reason you're here. It's the reason that you ended up in the bad way that you're in, because you trusted yourself. And then they add this line, which I've never forgotten. If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. Isn't that good and haunting and invasive and rude? But it's true. Like, don't you get into that, the cul-de-sac of your own experience, and you just keep doing the same stupid thing over and over again and wondering, why is the same thing happening to me? Well, it's because you're doing the same stupid thing. And, and so if we are to be wise, we have to admit that there are massive things that we do not know or do not understand or have misunderstood and need to reevaluate. That's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's assuming that people lack wisdom. Um, so if you want to find out, by the way, where you're deficient in wisdom, ask where you're making the same error over and over again, whether it's overspending or bad romance or being hypercritical or whatever it is, because that is the cul-de-sac that God wants to invade. That's where God wants to give you a breakthrough. That's where you need wisdom. Uh, that's where you need his wisdom. So you need an awareness that you're lacking. And then two, you need to ask. That's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God. Now, asking is not some easy whim. Because there's a reason that we stay in the cul-de-sacs that we stay in. Because they are comforting. Because they're familiar. Because they're relieving, in a sense. Because at least we know the terrain and territory, even if it's hurting us. But to ask entails a sense of humility. That you are in a place where you have no other option because you have... You have um, dished out all the water that is in the reservoir of self. And you need water from a different cistern. You need water from a different reservoir. And so asking means that you are articulating to God that very need to say, I um, have uh, trusted in my own heart and it has not gotten me very far. I am now asking you to give me uh, an intuitive intelligence that supersedes my own givens, supersedes what my mother taught me, what my father taught me, what my school taught me, what my background is all about, how I've been shaped and cultivated. I'm asking you to override the system and give me something that I do not have by nature. I'm asking you to give me something that is more foundational than anything else I could ever ask for. And to ask means to articulate that, not just to feel a hunch, but to really say to God with real words, in order for me to get through or have a breakthrough, I need you to provide me with this gift of wisdom that I can't create in and of myself. And, and James says that, by the way, you need to ask this with faith. And what is faith? Faith is this stubborn trust that God is not only there, but that God is not withholding. Jesus taught us this. When you go to God, um, it's not like somebody who goes to a parent and asks for bread and the parent hands them a scorpion sandwich. It's not like that. He says, who of you, who among you, though you are evil, um, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will God give you good gifts if you ask him? And if you ask for wisdom, James says, it will be given to you. It will be given to you. Um, <clears throat> by the way, this passage, when it talks about faith and not wavering, it has to do with the acquisition of wisdom. I only say this because I've heard some like health, wealth, gospel ministers preach this text out of context. And they say, if you have enough faith, it can yield all sorts of fringe benefits like money or a yacht 
or social standing? No, this text is about asking for wisdom. And when you ask in faith, in trust, for wisdom, you will receive it. By the way, James later in his epistle will say this about prayer. You have not because you ask not. Do you remember that? He says sometimes the reason you don't yield anything from God is because you've not put yourself in a position where you're dependent and you're actually asking him to do something. And so you're just sort of stuck. So one of the ways to get unstuck is to articulate or to quote my Pentecostal brethren, give it utterance, give it utterance, like say it out loud. Don't let it be some hunch in your heart or some liver shiver. Give it utterance, say what it is you need. And when you say it in faith, God through the word says that you'll get what you need. You'll get what you need. By the way, I have never known anybody for whom this was not true. That if you go to God in humility and you say, I am stuck, I'm utterly stuck, I don't know my way out, I need a wisdom that supersedes my own, I've never seen the windows or doors of heaven shut at that point. You'll always get something. Now, you may not like what you get, but you'll get something that will get you out. Yeah. So he's encouraging us to call upon the Lord with our, um, with our voices in light of our lack by the way, let me say this to you. Wisdom sounds like some sort of super spiritual gift or some sort of bougie but slightly unnecessary accessory, some luxury that you might acquire when you're gray-haired or bald after the age of 68 or uh, 42. Um, but, but friends, I don't think it, that's what it is at all. If you are 13, you need wisdom. If you are married, you need wisdom. If you are single, you need wisdom. If you have children, you sure <laughs> you need wisdom. If you are um, if you're in, in, in visually impaired, you need wisdom. If you are uh, if you uh, have an ailment right now tonight that is just giving you such pain, you need wisdom. If you have a difficult department, you need wisdom. Uh, if you are retiring and thinking about your autumn years, you need wisdom. Everybody does because wisdom is a matter of survival. It's a matter of survival. It's a matter of doing less damage and maximizing the benefits of life for you and for others. We all need wisdom in this room tonight because maybe, just maybe, you have a, a teenager who is incessantly thwarting you. You know, they're going through a phase. Incessantly thwarting you, defying you at every turn, sapping you of your patience and strength. And, and truth be told, you are just a day away from breaking. You need wisdom. Or you have a son who is experiencing all sorts of inexplicable panic attacks, and he's becoming sullen and withdrawn, and things are getting very dark very quickly. You need wisdom. And if you are a person who has inherited a family pattern, let's say, of mishandling conflict, where you either stuff it, stuff it, stuff it until you absolutely blow up, or you just lash out, you just become this volcanic presence everywhere you go and people are terrified of you and keeping their distance from you, you need, to, you need wisdom to unmake that family pattern, yes? Or if you've been hitting the bottle of Jack Daniels a little too frequently and a little too hard, and you're not sure now how to stop because you're, truth be told, you're uh, dependent upon that stuff. You need wisdom. And if you uh, really need to break up with somebody because you're dating, but it's not going well, but you've come, become sort of oddly dependent upon them and they on you, and it's just getting worse and worse in terms of the, the psychodynamic realities that are belied in that relationship, you need wisdom to get out of it. We need wisdom today. We need a wisdom that supersedes our own. We need a wisdom that is wiser than any wisdom we have. And what if, and this is more than a what if, that's rhetorical, what if all you had to do was ask? and you could have it. If you asked, and you could have everything you needed, because that's what the scripture says. And if you ask, you'll get what you need. So he says, you lack wisdom, and I want you to have wisdom so that you're more complete. And then he talks in verses 9 through 11 about wealth. 
He talks about people that lack wealth. And he's not saying that what you need is to become audaciously rich. What he's saying is you need a different way of thinking about money. 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11, please follow along. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, just remember, when James begins his letter to this audience, he describes the audience as the dispersed ones, people that have been kicked out or displaced from their homes. In other words, most of them are needy or poor. They're bereft of the common comforts of life. But there's a tension in James' congregations, and he mentions this frequently in the letter, between rich and poor, between the haves and the have-nots. And he rectifies that tension in this passage in a very odd way. Here, James says to both rich and poor, hey, y'all, you have something in common. And here it is. Deep down, you're all broke. You're all bereft, whether you recognize it or not. You are all in poverty. The poor, very obviously now, and the rich, eventually. James got this insight, by the way, from Jesus, who talked a lot about money, but he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, meaning everything that you've earned Every penny will be taken from you. We are born with nothing. We die with nothing. In the middle, we have some stuff, and that stuff tends to break down. All of our toys, the six-cylinder engines, the collection of Waterman fountain pens, of which I have many, the impressive liquor cabinets, the million-dollar retirement account, the impressive libraries, the $2,000 suits, the well-curated homes. James says it's all grass, and August is coming. James is saying that ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, everyone goes broke. And note, James says something odd to the people who live between birth and death, who experience economic realities, blessings, and hardships. He invites rich and poor to do something crazy, to celebrate what they lack, not what they have, to develop a boast or a swagger about what you don't have. This is what he says in the passage. Let's read it again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What kind of exaltation do poor people have? They don't even know if they're going to make it another week, especially within the first century. The exaltation of the poor, at least within the New Testament, is re-identification. Re-identification. Because in the New Testament, if you are broke uh, and devastated by economic hardships, That is not the sum total of your identity. Now, it would have been in the Roman world, but it's not within Christianity, because as a baptized Christian, you are just as beautiful and wonderful to God as your wealthy neighbor. There is no differentiation ontologically between you and the person who has a lot more than you. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation that I am more than what other people say I am. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I've got more going for me than you could ever imagine. And then he also says, and let the rich boast in his humiliation. What kind of humiliations do rich people experience? Well, rich people are not immune to the human experience. The rich are no stranger to cancer, divorce, the death of loved ones, depression, and anxiety. And so the rich have an opportunity to boast to the poor, saying, I'm not better than you in any way. All it takes for me to to, uh, fall down flat on my face is a virus, the same as you. We're not different in that way. Well, James knew that the only permanent wealth 
was not discovered in this terrain, but in the terrain of heaven. Everything else has an expiration date. And uh, I want to say this to all of us tonight. It is a beautiful and gorgeously defiant thing to boast in what we lack. I encourage you to do that. Don't boast in what you have. Boast in what you lack. Because maybe tonight you are rich in intelligence. If so, boast in the very subjects about which you know nothing. That way you can learn things. Maybe you're rich in friendships. Well, boast in how being totally alone and isolated makes you terribly uncomfortable, which is not always good for you, right? If you're rich in emotional maturity, boast how you also can be pretty ridiculous and quirky and petty in the wrong situation. If you are rich in good taste and finery, boast in the fact that you, like all of us, love going to Taco Bell. Um, if you are rich in finances, boast in what finances can never do for you or your family. But boast in what you lack, because by doing so, you reject the world. Well, James is pointing out what we lack, how we often lack wisdom, and how we lack wealth, or even when we have wealth, we lose it, but how we often lack an appropriate understanding of wealth. Uh, friends, I want to conclude now with two stories in light of these passages, one from my own um, life and one from uh, Queen Elizabeth's life. Uh, you, you may know that uh, the, the well-beloved monarch Elizabeth II um, passed away. She was a woman who, in my estimation, was both wise in the biblical sense of wisdom and was also extremely wealthy, almost unparalleled in her wealth. But she understood where true wealth to be, was to be found. Uh, she was a woman, I think, in whom some of these principles lived and grew. This is what Elizabeth II wrote about Jesus. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness, and from our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general nor a monarch, important though they are, she adds. No, instead, he sent a savior with the power to forgive. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel for the first time the power of God's love. Well, she grappled with a great wisdom and understood what great wealth was all about. Now, this is a, a, a story about me, certainly not one that puffs me up, but tears me down a little bit, but uh, maybe you can relate to it. Uh, so today is uh, now three years to the day that my mother died. She died somewhat unexpectedly. She struggled very, very seriously with multiple addictions for many, many years. And there was a time toward the end where things became so fraught relationally that I thought the only mode of survival was to completely remove myself from that situation and to really not engage anymore. By the way, I'm not saying that boundaries aren't important. I'm not saying that there isn't time for that. But I, I doubled down too hard. You know what I'm, you know, I went too far. And I distanced myself too much. That's one of the ways that we can damage the precious jewel boxes that are our families. And now that she's gone, I have a lot of regret about those few years and my inaction and non-involvement. And what I've learned 
what wisdom God has taught me as I have brought this to God is that sometimes it's right to put up a temporary wall, but make sure you don't use cement between the bricks. There are some times when you need to protect yourself, but you can't live your whole life as one big act of protection because then when you need to be close to people, you can't do it anymore. And it was at that moment that I really grew in my heart to begin to love my family in a healthier way, in a way that expanded my own person, and I think has had positive effects in my broader family as well. But God taught me that because I, I, have, I had a lack of wisdom, and I had to bring that lack to God and he never picks us up without putting us down in a wider place. Yeah. So, just a thought. Friends, James um, knows a secret. We may lack things. We may lack wisdom. We may lack wealth. But ultimately, we have a Christ in whom both true wisdom and true wealth are undyingly present. A Christ that makes us complete when we in and of ourselves are incomplete. If we have Christ, we won't ultimately lack anything. For in Christ, all deficits are provided for. Christ is both the wisdom of God and the wealth of God. And if you ask God for that wisdom and that wealth, it will never, ever be withheld from you. You'll have everything you need. The more we realize this, the more robust we can become. And it is because of Christ that James looks at you with starry-eyed optimism, and so do I. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not.